Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Mary Kratt, author of the poetry collection Watch Where You Walk, and the history book, Charlotte, North Carolina, A Brief History, and many more books. Fred Chappell, former North Carolina Poet Laureate, says of Watch Where You Walk, that it is clean-lined, economical, pointed, and soulful, and that these lyrics strike to the heart of things immediately, then linger with musical suggestion in the mind. Mary thinks of herself as a poet who writes history, because she began as a poet but was invited and led to write history. Turns out she was innately curious and found it fascinating to dig into the past and interview characters who let her in, really in. Her book, Charlotte, North Carolina, Brief History, the History Press, is an example of one search into Charlotte's history, which is filled with interesting stories and pictures, too. Since Mary started as a poet, we start the show with her reading her poem, Living with the Man Who Loves John Wayne, from her collection, Watch Where You Walk. Living with the Man Who Loves John Wayne. When you marry, there are things you can't know like whether he'll be bald, remember birthdays, or merely look at other women. You never know what we'll ask the most, like 30 years of John Wayne movies, how nothing else goes on in the world when the Duke is riding, even when you know what the sheriff will say, and how many swigs it takes for Rooster Cogburn to get true grit. I never knew it would be John Wayne, born Marion Morrison of Iowa, who would gallop our empty evenings, paunch one night, tenderfoot the next, all his battles over by bedtime, saint of the audible screen, immortal, mortal cowboy who loved tequila, wanted his true life tombstone to read. He was ugly. He was strong. Watch Where You Walk is Mary Craft's latest collection of poems. This book is about survival, joy in nature, women, wartime, travel, mischief, In other words, life and death and what is in between. Her other books of poetry include The Only Thing I Fear is a Cow and a Drunken Man, Carolina Wren Press, on the steep side and spirit going barefoot, winner of the Oscar Arnold Young Award from Briar Patch Press, Small Potatoes, winner of the Brockman Campbell Poetry Book Award, St. Andrews Press, and a chapbook, Valley, Salzier Press. Her poems have appeared in Shenandoah, Tar River Poetry, New Virginia Review, Stone Country, New Mexico, Humanities Review, Greensboro Review, Nimrod, Yankee, and others. Mary is a 1996 winner of a North Carolina Arts Council grant to McDowell Colony in New Hampshire, twice winner of the Blumenthal Writers and Readers Series, sponsored by the North Carolina Writers Network. She won the Fortner Writer and Community Award from St. Andrews College in 1994. She served on the Speakers Bureau of the North Carolina Humanities Council, Because of her books and essays on Charlotte history, Mary was commissioned to write walking tours of Uptown Charlotte and led regional day trip history tours for teachers and residents from the Museum of the New South. She lives in Charlotte and taught at UNC Charlotte from 1992 to 97. Her BA from Agnes Scott College and MA from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte are in English literature. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. 
And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so you describe yourself as a poet who writes history. So are you more poet or more history writer? Oh, I'm much more a poet. Yeah, that's how you got started. Yeah, I'm interested in the language and imaginative um, flights. Yeah. Um, and f- the facts with poetry, you have to, with poetry, you can mess around with the facts or okay. the things. Right. But You're- with history, you have to stick right to them. Well, maybe some politicians should be poets then if you can mess with the facts, right? <laughs> Uh, so uh, how was your writing path? How did you get started? You said it was poetry first. Was mm-hmm. it as a young child with poetry? Well, my parents, um, my dad was a newspaper editor, and my mother taught high school English and Latin, and we had a house full of books. And um, I wrote. I was the editor of the newspaper in junior and senior high school, and I wrote a little bit for the uh, college journal when I went to college. But mm-hmm. I didn't really get started Seriously, until my youngest child put her toe in kindergarten. Mm. Then I was off. Do you still have a copy of the first poem you wrote but somewhere in some scrapbook somewhere? <laughs> it's in one of the books, I think. Is it really? <laughs> okay, that's great. Uh, now, this living with a man who loves John Wayne, I assume that uh, you're talking about your husband here. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And he really does love John Wayne? Oh, he does. He's, we've seen all the movies. We can finish the lines. Um, we can do it for Casablanca, but also for... Um, True Grit and all these other John Wayne movies. We yeah. we know them all. Well, I, I was a big Louis L'Amour fan coming along and read all his paper, oh, yeah. paperback books and everything. And every time I'm reading one, my wife says, now I can tell you how that's going to end. <laughs> she says, you know, this guy's going to ride into town. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a school marm. You know, yeah. some guy's going to, you know, ruffle her up and he's going to take care of her. Then he's going to get on his horse. And he's mm-hmm. going to say, ma'am, have a good day. He's going to ride into the sunset. <laughs> Where are the bad guys? <laughs> yeah, that's the bad guy. The bad guy came in and, uh, you know, messed with the school more. You know, I so, see. Yeah, yeah. I so see. He, he took care of it. Anyway, I said, no, no, that's not how they all end. But John Wayne, he did. they did have kind of a rhythm going there, right? Yes, they did. All, the, all those shows. Does he still watch those shows? I mean, do you still? Yeah, they're yeah. on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Turner yeah. Classic Movies has them often. Yeah, so. And uh, uh, we watch them if we haven't watched them too many times. Did you uh, become a John Wayne fan uh, just because there was only one TV available in the, in the house? <laughs> or did you work on your poetry while he's watching John Wayne? Well, it, once or twice to, to, look, to look at him is uh, entertaining, but then, it, then you yeah. find something else to do back in the back of the house. And, and how many John Wayne movies did you have to watch before you said, damn it, I'm going to write a poem about this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was probably uh, five years after I started writing poems that I wrote this one. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to do this show today in two parts, listeners. We're going to do poetry first, and then uh, we're going to dive into Mary's book on the uh, the history of Charlotte, uh, talk about some interesting facts related to Charlotte's history that she uncovered, uh, or at least illustrated in her book. Um, but first, Mary, for poetry, let's talk about the type of poetry you've written over the years, because it's not, it's not all the same, right? You do mm-hmm. different things with your mm-hmm. poetry. Well... Some of them, some of it is um, occasionally based on a historical figure or a person that I run into that either seems uh, rather fascinating or odd or entertaining. And so what I do is um, I sort of enter into that personality. So, and what you call them, a lot of them are persona poems. Mm. So you bec- you become the woman, uh, or you become the child, or you become the woman who's whose husband is also always watching John Wayne. That mm-hmm. was easy to do. When you said the poetry doesn't have to always involve truth, but there's a lot of truth in poetry too, right? Oh, I mean, yes. Yeah, and, and so do you gravitate more to the truth-telling side of poetry or to the imaginary side? You need both. You need both, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Emily Dickland said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. <laughs> okay. And so what I'm doing is trying to do that. All right. Uh so this book here, Watch Where You Walk, this is your most recent collection of poetry, yes. right? Is this a collection of uh, poems from over the years, or is it new poetry, or did uh, did you have a theme in mind when you wrote this book? Um, no, it's a collection that's ch- uh, chosen from about five five or six books. I okay. went and so, found sort of some the of the best, best, the best of Mary The Craft. best of those. And then the end, 
is uh, all they're all new. They're more history related poems. There's one about Virginia Woolf, and there's one about uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, and <laughs> so mm-hmm. quite the gamut. Yeah, and you've been well published, and you've written a lot of poetry over the years, and you've been had chat books, and you've been published uh, in online journals as well. So, how did you decide, you know, what to put in and what to leave out? <laughs> Well, I had some yeah. friends read it, and they'll yeah. tell you right quick. They'll tell you what to leave out? Yeah. They will. They <laughs> yeah. will. Yeah. Are they still your friends after that? Uh, yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> Valuable friends. Valuable friends. Are you in kind of a critique group, or do you share your poetry with others? I've been in uh, critique groups for probably 30 years, different ones. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm in two. Um, and mm-hmm. to be a good writer, you have to listen to an editor. Right, yeah. or or someone whom you trust to have good judgment, and uh, so I'm lucky in that that sense. That's great. All right, so we're going to be going through uh, some readings from some, some of your different uh, poetry books. Starting first with "Watch Where You Walk." First thing you're going to read is a poem called "Seeing Carl Sandburg." You want to set that up a little bit? Sure. Just tell, tell us what's mm-hmm. going on here. Well, I grew up in West Virginia. My father, that's where I was born in Beckley, West Virginia. My father was a newspaper editor. Mother was a high school English teacher, and uh, they learned somehow when I was probably seven or eight years old that Carl Sandburg was coming to, in one of the hollers over okay. on the other side of the mountain. And so one night we took off in the old Studebaker and went up the one mountain and down another and found him. So how many years after that actual experience did you end up writing this short poetry piece here. <laughs> Probably 45. Really? Uh-huh. Okay, still stuck with you, the memory of that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, all right, so anytime you're ready. Seeing Carl Sandburg. It was dark when we found it, white, just somebody's house. That night, my parents drove crooked roads to sit in a room with one swinging overhead light. And here the visitor, a shirt-sleeved, green-visored poet, who played a guitar. We were West Virginia. He was Chicago, his hair cream bright. My first guitar, first poet. He spoke words plain as whole notes. And later down the mountain, we carried them. So later down the mountain, you're singing on the way, huh? <laughs> Coming around the mountain. Coming around the mountain. He spoke words plain as whole notes. He... Um, I didn't know he played the guitar. Was that something? Uh, yeah. Oh, he did that a lot. He, he has a whole has a whole book called um, Rutabaga Tales. He wrote mm. some children's songs. Mm. He's a very, um, very versatile fellow. Well, you, you're also kind of getting into the voice here of a younger child, I suppose, because it was that hard to do to go. I mean, you wrote about it 45 years later, but you're kind of putting it in in the frame of mind of someone who is a young child mm-hmm. going to do this. That's easy to do. It, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Just kind of think back and remember those days and mm-hmm. sit down and write? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we got we go from Carl Sandburg uh, to Field Trip from Assisted Living. Talk, tell us about that uh, poem. Well, my mother was in a, a retirement home and then later in the nursing skilled nursing section. And um, when she got to be 99, um, I would go by and see her almost every other day because we live nearby. And at a good nursing home uh, or retirement home, they have an activities director, and they come up with all these different activities for people to do, particularly if they're like my mother who was, she couldn't see, she couldn't hear very well, and she certainly couldn't walk. So she was really stranded up there in bed. And so the, this is a, a very short poem about the activity director who came to mother's door. My mother's name was Mrs. Norton. And in the South, we say Ms. Norton. Okay. All right. Anytime you're ready. All right. Field trip from assisted living. At the door of mother's room, the activity director asks, Ms. Norton, moving over to mother's bed, would you like to go with us on a mystery ride? Quickly, mother answers, honey, I am on a mystery ride. <laughs> That's good. And you do remember her saying this? <laughs> yes, yes. All right, Mary, I love that uh, I am on a mystery ride. So how old was your mother when she was on her mystery ride here? She was 99. She was 99. And she got to be 100, 100 and a half before uh-huh. she died. 
hundred and a half. But wow. she was still very witty, and the, the um, all the help liked her a lot because she would say things that were entirely out of order. Hmm. Now, did, did she was she lucent here? I mean, this was a conscious statement. Yes, okay. yes, very conscious. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So she had a good good wit even toward the end. Huh? She did. She did. Yeah. And. Uh, did you get to spend some time with her toward the end when she was uh, in the assisted living? I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. I would go at least every couple of days to see her and uh, sit, and we would, we would take our, my grandsons there to, to meet with her, mm-hmm. and uh, she would um, reach out and hold their hands and feel the, their arms, and when their arms got hairy, she knew they were growing older, and, <laughs> and she would pick up their foot and say, oh, my big foot, yeah. you know, so... Now, you're, you're a lot younger than 99 and a half, but you do live in a retirement community that has activity directors, right? And yes. They're, they're trying to move you around, get you to do things, yeah. right? But we're yeah. going to the ballet on Thursday. Well, there you go. And went to the symphony last week. Yeah, well, that's part of what the activity directors do. They get you out too, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they yes. range these trips. Do you enjoy that environment? Very much. Yeah. I particularly like the shuttle that takes you uptown, uptown. at night. Yeah. You don't have to park. Then it's there when you get through and you just swizz on back home. That's great. Okay, so uh, we've gone from seeing Carl Sandburg as a young child to uh, sitting with your mother at age 99 and a half. Uh, so this next read is Not This Time. What's that about? Well, that's still about my mother. Uh, this was a little bit later than the one I read previously. Um, I, my husband and I went on a trip. Um, we went out actually out of the country, and so I was concerned that she might slip away from us while we were out of the country. But I'd felt that for a long time, so this is called Not This Time. All right, anytime you're ready. Before I left town, I said goodbye and kissed my mother and at the door stood and gazed as she lay slack in bed, 99 and stranded on the rugged beach of age. This is it, I thought. It's time, the, er- the nurse had said. Each day away, each phone call might have been the one. But when I returned, she sat dressed in the hall. You're back, she said in her purple hat. You're back, I said, taking off my coat. What have you been doing, I asked. She answered firmly, go in here and there with my mother. We had lots to do. (laughs) Okay, so at this time, is she starting to have a little bit of She's not sure where she is, and you know, she's out with her mother and having a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so she, people that age coming back and forth into the, into the present time. Mm-hmm. But it's enjoyable for them to, uh, one day I brought her a tomato, and she told me all of, a couple of stories about raising tomatoes and her brothers. So, yes, okay. So And you, you talked about it being, you know, she was trapped, um, and yet the way you describe it, she seemed like she was at peace there to some extent. I mean, well, my mother said, "I will never be bored." Okay. And the reason she said that was because she had a, in her mind, she had poems and stories and Shakespeare quotes and mm-hmm. and relatives' tales and all sorts of things. So she would travel, in her mind, to places that she had visited. Mm-hmm. So she was a poet too. No, no. She just enjoyed poetry. She did stretch the truth like poetry can. (laughs) (laughs) Did she ever give you feedback on your poetry? Oh, yeah. She was very very much in favor of it. Okay. Told you what you liked, told you what you might do better? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Occasionally. Occasionally. Okay, good. All right, Mary, so now we're going to shift from your most recent poetry collection to your book, Small Potatoes, which, by the way, has little potatoes on the cover Mm -hmm. of the book. You, uh, this was published in 1999. You've got a nice little review on the back of the book from a local author and uh, memoirist and poet, Judy Goldman. She says, in this superb collection, Mary Kratt, one of our most popular intercon writers, holds up the customary small potatoes patterns of our lives to a keen and thoughtful light. Her poems are subtly written, yet direct and forceful. They are highly intelligent and truth-filled. She rides, she pushes, she rides. So there's some truth in these poems. That's huh? right. <laughs> that's a nice little review by Judy. Very, yeah. very kind. Yeah, that's kind. Um, so let's talk about Small Potatoes, the title. Um, where'd that come from? Well, there's a, there's a phrase. I don't know, know whether it's northern or southern or where, but, uh, oh, that's Small Potatoes. That means something right. that's piddling, that's right. no, of no count. Yeah. And what you learn as a poet, or as, as I learn, 
and see that it's the small things that carry the um, the, the wisdom mm. and the humor uh, if you can uh, stop long enough to look at them. Right. And you, you talk about um, images. You sometimes write poems about images. And you've got a, got a poem here you're going to do called Signs. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to set that up? Tell us a little bit yes. about that. Sure. Yes. It's one of those things, uh, small things that you notice that the rest of the world is walking by, racing. And I was in a parking lot one time in the shopping center, and the, the rain had stopped and the sun came out suddenly. Hmm. And the way the light looked was the way I had had remembered rainbows happening. Uh, And so I knew there had to be a rainbow somewhere and nobody else was paying attention. So I got in my car and and went toward the light and uh, I found it. You found it. You Mm -hmm. found it in your I chased it. You chased it, yeah. Did you have your notebook with you? Were you writing things down? No, it's all a matter of seeing. Okay, you saw it and then you went and wrote it down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Anytime you're ready. Yes. Signs. Between Briar Creek and a road called Runnymede, the colors of air change. It's an eminence I remember. This moment of rainbow backed up to darkness, a moving mist with light like a saint wears. In search, I speed unfamiliar streets, seeking a hill to view what has to be. The signs are right. You know how it ends, how rainbows aren't overtaken like bandits on the road, but come soft, silent, unaware, a lucky time. Okay, Mary, so I recognize the street names here. We got Briar Creek, Runnymede. Uh, well, Briar Creek's the creek, but uh, you got Runnymede Road. And uh, and I also recognize what, you, I mean, what you're describing here, rainbows just come of a sudden, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you ever seen a couple of rainbows together? And, I have, yeah. at, on a trip one time. And when it's raining, uh, sometimes there's it, one there. You know? Barely. Uh, barely, uh-huh. yeah. But uh, this one had an impression on you, right? You had to mm-hmm. had to go write about it. Um, and you're right, it is, uh, you do feel kind of lucky to see a rainbow. You do. Yeah. It's, you know, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I have even stopped people in a, um, in a shopping center saying, did you see that rainbow over there? Can you look over there? <laughs> and they, they look, some people look at me like I'm nuts, but others stop and they, they pull their kid over and say, look, and it's like a, a miracle. Yeah, it is one of those things that you often want to point out to other people. I mean, you don't always point out the blue sky or the sun shining or even clouds, but if there's a rainbow, mm-hmm. you're going to point that out. It's so rare. It's rare, yeah. Mm-hmm. Unpredictable. Yeah, and... Uh, I don't know about the pot of gold, but uh, my wife recently got me some Lucky Charms. I hadn't had those since I was a kid. Those are kind of fun to have for breakfast. <laughs> cereal. <laughs> cereal. Well, That's right. They even write a poem about cereal sometimes. And, good. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, okay, so you you obviously have fun with some of the poems, and you've got another one in the book here that we're going to read. Uh, it's called Underneath. Can you talk about what that's about? Well, it's another small thing, and it's a small poem in a small book. The, the book Small Potatoes. Um, one day, uh, we lived sort of out in the country before Charlotte took us over. Um, the doorbell rang, and I went to the door, and the house where we lived uh, was the second home that had been built on this acreage, and another old farmhouse had been on the property before then. But I went to the door, and there was a, do- a man at the door, and he had all his workers there, and he had a question to ask me. Uh, he had a problem with he was apparently I can't remember whether he was gathering up leaves or cutting logs or what it was but he had a question for me which is right at the beginning of the poem all right anytime you're ready all right the poem is underneath a hole is a serious thing when a repairman's wheel goes where there's nothing beneath and he walks from his truck comes to my door his crew standing around the long front yard, hands in pocket, peaceful workmen waiting. Ma'am, I think we're in your septic tank. I say, it's way out back. Well, your water line then to the road. I say, no, we're not on city water. We have a well. And he says, well, whatever it is, we're in it. And I go out, and they are. I can see that. So uh, when you have these little 
things that happen to you in life? I mean, do you, d- does it occur to you then, I want to write about this, or is this something that occurs to you when you're sitting down and you've got uh, either pen and pad or at your computer and you think back, and then that's when they, they gel? Which is it? Well, it might be a note I find that I stuck away somewhere in a drawer and uh, expand upon it. Or it might be a deadline that I'm going to a poetry group and i got to take something. Okay. So right. I come up with something. Well, this is, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this poem underneath. Uh, I can just see this fella. You know, he's not arguing with you. He's just, a, he's just a guy doing his job, and he's got his crew waiting for him, and he comes up to be polite, and he's telling you what's going on, and you tell him, well, no, it's not that. And then he says, well, maybe it's this. And you say, well, no, it's not that. And he says, well, it's something. <laughs> <laughs> I think and, I think it was the old well, and, and, and we're in it, you know, and, and we're in it. So uh, it, it may not be what you say it is, ma'am, but uh, we're certainly in something, right? Right. And you go out there, and they are they're mm-hmm. in it. They're, what was it? You think it was, was an old well? It, their wheels were sunk down in a in a, a, a low place, and it, okay. it could easily have been a, a well, but they did get out of it, and so we blocked it off so nobody could do that again. Okay, Mary, we've got one final read here uh, from the poetry side of the show today before we shift to Mary Kratt, the history writer. This is also from the book we started with, Watch Where You Walk. Uh, it's called Eye Level with Brown Pelicans. Can you tell us where you were with respect to this poem and uh, set it up just a little bit? Yes, I was on a, a high-rise hotel um, in North Myrtle Beach, and um, – I had eaten some seafood that was bad, and I didn't get to go to the to the big deal program that was downstairs uh, in the mm. ballroom. So mm. I was sitting up there uh, at d- dusk um, watching the brown pelicans go over, which are they, at, at the level I was at, on the beach in the hotel, they were right eye level with me. Mm. And so I began to feel sort of like a, some omnipotent viewer Mm-hmm. Looking, um, look, looking at the world. Yeah, they're just right there. Okay, all right, mm-hmm. so pick it up when you're ready. I level with brown pelicans. A stretch of beach and tall pink condos banded by white balconies. Each day in front of our hotel, the boy plants umbrellas like painted pine trees. A perfect tiny line of yellow, red, and blue, five each, two chairs apiece, and up the beach a trailer park's bright laundry flies, and supper smells and shouts arise with everybody's music, while brown pelicans soar over, following their leader. Like us, they're flying toward extinction. From my hotel, we're eye to eye, above calypso bands that sway in heat to steel drums beat down by the pool. One elderly woman, alone on a back staircase, breaks into a dance step. If this is what God sees, how he must love us each for such inept dimension, color, stubbornness against a tide, the land, and this small stretch of beach. So when you're not feeling well on a trip, you've always got your poetry, right? (laughs) (laughs) You uh, you can just look out uh, at the world around you and then uh, and then write about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, listeners, when we come back, we're going to go from uh, Mary Craft the poet to Mary Craft the uh, history writer. We're gonna we're gonna do a few things. We're gonna focus uh, on the book Charlotte, North Carolina: A Brief History, and we've got uh, several different uh, areas of that history we're gonna dive into. We're also gonna do the writing life segment. And then we'll have a final reading. Uh, that relates to uh, to our Queen City. So please stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'd like to give a shout-out here to Social Grit Marketing. You may have noticed in the last uh, couple of months, our Facebook page and our Instagram page have improved significantly over what it was when I was handling it all by myself. Uh, I've joined forces with Social Grit, uh, Wade Foley, who's the owner, and Renee Gorman, who's leading much of the... Uh, Social media work that uh, we're doing now at, at Charlotte Rich Podcast have helped me uh, improve that platform, helped uh, authors give more voice to the written words by sharing more on the uh, on the Facebook platform and on the Instagram platform. And, it, hey, it just looks better, too. So they're doing a great job. I appreciate what they're doing. I still tweet a little bit uh, on Twitter. If any of y'all want to take that over, just give me a call. Uh, and, you know, there's LinkedIn, too. But, uh, anyway, the, the, the major platforms we're working on, Facebook and Instagram, they are – 
they're taking charge and they're, and they're doing well. So engage with us there. They'll engage back. Uh, I'll jump in too from time to time and we'll try to keep the conversation going uh, through social media. You can find out more about Social Grip Marketing at their website, socialgripmarketing.com, information about their services, about their clients, testimonials, and so forth. But one testimonial here, um, you know, they're a great team to work with, particularly uh, if you're a small business, although they do large businesses as well. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you need some help, uh, they might be somebody when you want to turn to. So uh, having said that, let's, uh, get, let's get back to the episode. All right, listeners, we're back with uh, Mary Kratt. She's a poet, uh, author of Watch Where You Walk and many other poetry collections, and also the book we're going to focus on now, Charlotte, North Carolina, A Brief History. Uh, Mary, uh, you say you were a poet who became a history writer. What drew you to history besides a commission to write a book? (laughs) Well, uh, I was asked to write some um, short pieces for the the newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, which were called Piedmont Guidebooks. I would go traveling with my husband on business trips in North Carolina and would come home with questions about certain places we were, and I would look it up and, and write up. It's probably 300 words or less. And someone uh, had read those and saw them, and so when they were looking for a person to write the history of Charlotte, several people recommend, recommended my name. And I really would never call myself a historian, but I'm a storyteller who does write history as well as poetry. I am, my ear is tuned to a, a good story. And this was published in 2009? Yes, it is a, yeah. it is a second edition of okay. that book. An earlier edition came out in 1990. But this is not the only book you've written about the history of Charlotte, right? You, you, you've gone into different... Mm-hmm. Segments. You, you and Tom Hanchett partnered on a book together about right. Myers Park and, and that legacy. And mm-hmm. um, he's also in this season. Uh, he and I did a deep dive into his book, uh, sorting out the New South City. And he he talks a lot about Myers Park being one of those exclusive neighborhoods with the deed restrictions and only mm-hmm. white people and all that kind of thing. So y'all got into that pretty we, deep. We did. You, yeah. So there are two sides to history, right? There's sort of the nostalgic side, and there's a side that if you shine a light on it, maybe not as pretty, perhaps, as we'd like it to be, right? Right. That's very yeah. true. And that that's Charlotte, like any city, I guess, has got that, that yes. history that's got to yes. deal with. We all have the dark side. Yeah. But in this book, it's, uh, it, it's less about that. You're trying to share, I think, uh, different aspects of Charlotte's history and in a format that I think is really nice because— unlike some kind of history treatise that someone may have written, you know, that's got, you know, very little white space on the page. You do breaks in the book, mm-hmm. and you've got headings, and you do short. So it's easy to pick up the book, probably, and just flip to any place in the book. Plus, you include pictures, too, right? I do. Where did you find all the pictures? Well, I gathered them. The first edition of that book had uh, was a hardback, and it had tw- 200 pictures. Right. And I went around... Um, uh, asking various places and getting permission to to use them, sure, and that, that, pro- was, that probably took you longer than writing the book, right? It did, <laughs> it did. It was much more complicated. Yeah, but I mean, you got some nice, you know, you got photographs and uh, actually these are sort of sketches, uh, Nathaniel Green and Lord Cornwallis, uh, you know, early in the book. But then later in the book, you've got uh, pictures of what you know the Presbyterian Church looked like on West Trade Street early in the 20th century. You've got pictures of what North Trine and Trace Street looked like in the early days mm-hmm. of commerce in Mecklenburg County. And I took some of those pictures, the picture of the Mint, the old Mint Museum of Art, is a photograph right. I took, and also right. a picture of the Panther, the big black Panther oh, yeah, yeah. outside the Panther Stadium. Okay. Uh, well, you're going to start just with a couple of paragraphs here on an opening read uh, that involves uh, the spirit of independence. Uh, kind of tells us how this uh, city of Charlotte happened to be where it is. The trading path ran a lifeline through the town and the county. It marked a boundary of land. One deed cites its beginning at the corner on the south of the Indian path that leads from the Widow Pickens to the Catawba Nation. Taverns sprung up in the town and along the path where travelers stopped between Salisbury and Charlestown, which later became Charleston, to sample the local whiskey. Spirits were essential to Scots-Irish life. A Mecklenburg farm of any size produced its own spirits, 
whiskey from grain, wine from grapes, brandy from local peaches, all were traded in Charlottetown or carried to Charlestown or Philadelphia to be exchanged for salt, spices, and other household goods. Spirited refreshments were commonly served at funerals and weddings. Even preacher Craighead's estate inventory noted a punch bowl among his effects. Each farm was largely self-sufficient, producing its own food, yarn, cloth, and shoe leather. Currency remained in very short supply that anything desirable was often traded for goods and services. Early settlers traded tallow, butter, cheese, and leather from their cattle for such items as a piece of window glass, a pottery bowl, an iron skillet, or cutlery. I come here, so I like this line here. Spirits were essential to Scott's Irish life. <laughs> and this, they still are. Yeah, exactly. And this, uh, this area of the country, uh, what we call you know Charlotte now, uh, was there were a lot of Scots Irish that helped found mm-hmm. this area. And the other thing you mentioned in this opening read uh, is is a preacher, preacher Craighead. He 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 had a role in the early development here and involving the religion, the Presbyterian yeah. side of things, right? Wasn't he a fire, sort of a... Firebrand, they fire called brand him. speaker, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was speaking out against English rule. Yeah, and so when we're going to be shifting here and going to something else, and, and I'm looking through the pictures here. You, you know, you do early in the book, you talk about how um, we were more hostile here to England than many other places. There's this uh, idea of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which I'm going to dive into deeply with Scott Seifert in a, in a podcast for this season. Um, and then you move through uh, the, the, the war, the revolution moves south and what's happening in this area. And you feature some of the local citizens of the time. Um, shout out to the Charlotte Museum of History where my wife mm-hmm. is a docent. You got the Hezekiah Alexander House in here. Mm-hmm. He was the brother to the secretary who was at that meeting mm-hmm. where they signed something, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Whether it was the MECDAC and the Mecklenburg Resolves or just one or the other. But uh, in any event, you, you've got another person here that you were going to highlight, Hugh Torrance. Tell us about him. Torrance was a, an immigrant from uh, Ireland who came here, and he came alone, um, got off a boat probably in Philadelphia, and came down here. He had heard that this, there was a Scots-Irish community down here and there was available land and so he was an industrious young man Mm -hmm. and this is what I've written about him. One immigrant to early Mecklenburg in the revolutionary period was Hugh Torrance whose log residence now sheathed in siding survives. Torrance arrived in America bearing a letter of character reference dated 1763 from his clergyman in County Tyrone, Ireland. It declared Torrance, and this is a quote, to be an unmarried person descended from honest and reputable parents who has always behaved himself orderly and supported a very fair character, unquote. Torrance purchased land on McDowell Creek in 1779, and before becoming a soldier, he traveled as a peddler. He subsequently sold goods in his log house in North Mecklenburg, and this house has a room that was partly store, and the house is called the Hugh Torrance House and Store, and it sits still on Gilead Road. Yeah, and it, it's a place that you can visit, right? I haven't, yes. I haven't been there, but you've been to it. I yes. Assume. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you've got the picture here. Certain Sundays it's open. Okay, and you say it's the early low house store, the oldest mercantile building in Mecklenburg County. Uh, was that along a trading path as well? Is it, it was a path. Yes, it was on a on a trail that okay. was obviously you wouldn't put a store in a house where there weren't many people going by. Yeah. Okay. So we're moving forward. We're gonna you know the Revolutionary War is for another episode, but uh, something happens uh, in the area that uh, is eventually going to bring uh, the Met, not the Met Museum, but the the Met, the federal. Met uh, to this area, and it has to do with something that's very shiny, right? Right. Discovery of gold. All right. You want to read this little section? Sure. 25 miles east of Charlotte in Cabarrus County, young Conrad Reed waited in Little Meadow Creek one dappled morning in 1799. Possibly he thought the bright dazzle was the sun's reflection. He didn't know why the rock shone, but he toted it home. A local silversmith said it had nothing to be excited about. He couldn't identify it. So the family used it as a doorstop. 
It was about the size of a shoe. Three years later, they discovered that this 17-pound gold-colored doorstop was worth considerably more than the $3.50 for which Conrad Reed's father naively sold it. A jeweler in Fayetteville fluxed it into a bar of gold about eight inches long worth $3,600. The Reed Gold Nugget was the earliest authenticated discovery of gold in the United States. So what would that have been worth today? Ooh. <laughs> Quite a bit of money, right? Quite a bit. And uh, so this is a... Uh, from the Reed Gold Mine that we think of? Yes. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so... I, it's, o- it's open to the public. Yeah. And, and is it true that they're also, um, underneath the center city of Charlotte, there are a lot of, I don't know, were they digging for gold around here too? And, and there's some caverns and things that they have to take into account when they're putting the trolley in and all this kind of stuff? Uh, they found some um, shafts. Yeah. The St. Catherine's Gold Mine was over... Um, Let's see, it's near where the stadium is, okay. the Panthers right. Stadium. Yeah. Um, and they've, the, one of the reasons they quit uh, using or, or looking for gold here was because the water table was so high that they had to deal with pumps and pump the water out before they could get in there. Hmm. But yes, the answer to your question is uh, there were gold shafts under the city of Charlotte. Okay, well, everybody knows... Um, about a big lake this close to Charlotte, uh, Lake Norman, and uh, there's also Lake Wiley, and there's the Catawba River. And at one time, before it was dammed up, it really was a moving river. You've got a photograph in here, a view of Great Falls on the Watauga River. It does not look like anything that we would see today there. It looks like you know some serious rapids are going on. You've got a little read here that relates to what was then called with the Southern Power Company and later became Duke Power, which kind of gives a description of what that what that water looked like at the time and, and the surrounding area. Could you read that for us? James B. Duke looked around the place uh, around Charlotte and saw that there were cotton mills that had no electricity. So his project was to build some dams across these waterfalls or these places where the water was tumbling and fierce. And one of them was in Great Falls, South Carolina, which now has a dam there at Great Falls uh, below, uh, b- below the North Carolina line. The location of one of these places uh, was described by a historian in 1860. At this place in the midst of fine cotton-growing country, almost inexhaustible water power invites capital and enterprise to seek good investment and confer substantial benefit upon the state. The place is wild and romantic. Almost the whole volume of the river is here compressed by a rugged island into a narrow channel between steep, rocky shores. There are no perpendicular falls, but down a rocky bed the river tumbles in mingled rapids and cascades, roaring and foaming and then subsides. So that almost sounds like something we would now go out west to, to see, right? But but humanity and everything else has taken mm-hmm. over this area, so we don't see that mm-hmm. anymore. So, Mary, we've got uh, one more read here uh, before we do our writing life segment uh, and then a, then a quick final read. But uh, you've got a little description here of Charlotte in 1905. I thought it would be interesting to have you read that to see what they were writing about this city you know, at the turn of the century. A gifted writer, Isaac Irvin Avery, worked for the Observer, and he snapped a verbal photograph of Charlotte in 1905 at the dawn of the 20th century, and this is what he wrote. The Charlotte citizen who has not been on the top of the Tompkins Tower does not know Charlotte at all. In a collection called Idle Comments, he was standing at the top of the building, a 14-story observatory platform above the factory, which is at the site of Trade and Tryon Street, where they cross, surveying the domes and the steeples of the city. The extraordinary view covered every street and house in Charlotte, and the suburban towns are as plain as pictures on canvas. One building near Davidson College is clearly indicated, as are farmhouses around Sharon Church. The view of the mountains is surprisingly fine, 
The bang and rattle of a loaded truck passing in the street below seems tenfold greater at this height. The clatter of horses' hoofs and exhaust of steam engines come up with piercing keenness. The living current of people and vehicles, the smoke from factories, and the exhaust of the railroad engines on the four, side of, four sides of town. He noted that it was a beautiful picture of a busy and thrifty city, framed in the white and black of the steam and the smoke of industry. And what I wrote myself is that clearly industry had become beauty to the people of Charlotte. Yeah, know, what surprised me about this is this guy's on a 14-story tower and he can see Davison College. <laughs> it know, shows you how clear the air was. Must, it must have been. There, there was nothing. There were, no, there were a few trains, but not many. Yeah. And, and he talks at the end about how Charlotte has passed through the transition stage and become a sure enough city. Residents who travel abroad and return are no longer surrounded at the square and eagerly questioned about the private life of the king or the pope. <laughs> a whole week instead of a day may be required to carry a choice bit of scandal in every part of the town. You may dodge a creditor for days without remaining in hiding. <laughs> the country mules do not shy at automobiles or silk hats walking around on weekdays. Yeah, so uh, interesting. So what they're saying is, okay, we're starting to get larger. We're starting to expand. And this is not long after my recollection from what Tom Hatchett told me in the podcast when they started to move out from the center city and living. Dilworth right. comes around in the late 1800s, and so mm-hmm. we're starting to see a city mm-hmm. that's growing. Yeah, yeah We're good. also going to start to see some things change that aren't good in terms of race relations and True. what happens there, but in terms of uh, growth, it's starting to happen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mary, before our final read today from your little history book here, we want to talk writing life segment. We do that in every show, and uh, you've been a writer for for many, many years, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. and you've been writing poetry and history. What is the difference uh, between writing poetry and history? It might seem self-evident to some, but I'm curious as to what you think about it. Well, you can put history in poetry by including stories, um, but you can't. You shouldn't put poetry in, into history. Uh, history is factual, and uh, you have to stick to the facts. And some people say, now, how can you do that? Uh, uh, poetry is imaginative, and so you can imagine things that never happened or might not ever happen. Um, you could take a story and stretch it and change the character and uh, make it impossible to believe, or you could make it... Um, sad and, and uh, dreary, uh, but if you're if you're writing history, at least for me, I don't stretch the history. I have hard enough times keeping uh, keeping with the facts, and the facts are very interesting. Very mm. interesting. The characters in the Charlotte area were very fa- fascinating. Right, but do you think how you display um, that history and how you talk about it or how you write about it can be? I mean, you can draw on your poetic abilities to, mm-hmm. to, to tell it because this phrase sure enough city mm-hmm. and what he was writing there that's a little bit poetic right it is yeah. it is he was a poet in a sense yeah um, and so so I guess what you're saying is that uh, with history you, you, you really got to kind of get grounded in the facts and make mm-hmm. sure you're dealing with that whereas poetry you're not as tied mm-hmm. to the facts except you, you can know. use dialogue in right. both in both history and poetry. Okay. Um, which and, is which is harder for you? Well, in poetry, you can make up the dialogue, like right. Ms. Norton, you know, yeah. uh, talking about my mother, yeah. sitting there. Or, But in in if you run across real dialogue that's in history, you're very lucky if it's lively. Mm, that's true. Now, you told me before that poetry is much harder and is more art. Um, but for you, was it, were you more of a natural poet and harder <laughs> to come come by the history writing? Or yes. Yeah, okay, okay. Yes. But I think you also told me that both involve telling stories. That's right. Yeah. I grew up in a southern family with my grandmother living in our house, and her sons would come by, and they would tell tall tales um, about families and strife and anger and joy and and uh, I used to sit, there was no television. We had only one car. There was no place to go. So I just would listen to the relatives coming and talking. Hmm. 
a little bit about uh, your process. Uh, do you write at certain times of the day? Do you write when the mood strikes you? What's your, and has it changed over the years? It's changed. Um, I have never written um, on a schedule. I should. Uh, the best peop- the best poets uh, and writers sit themselves down at a certain time and put their seat to the back of the chair mm-hmm. and wait for it to come or hope for it to come, and then they write and write and write. Um, I use. I have never had time to do that. Mostly, uh, what I do is um, look for something that knocks on my head, or or won't leave me alone, or it looks like a possible optimum moment that uh, I might be able to describe. I throw away a lot. I throw away a lot of lines and mm. pages, and I think every good writer does. So you said it's changed over time for you. How has it changed over time? Were you more of a disciplined writer early on, or or were you more disciplined writer now? I was a more disciplined writer. I don't write a whole lot now. Um, Mostly, uh, I'm doing some interviews where I live. There's some fascinating people out in the community where I Mm -hmm. live, and Mm so I've had those published, um, and I was able to pick characters that just fascinate. I was Mm -hmm. mischievously curious about them. but so, I don't have a regular schedule, no. So you're spreading the gossip, right? Yeah, the historical gossip, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty without my helping without, it out. Without your help. Do you, do you use a recorder when you do that, or you just take notes of the conversation? I take notes. Yeah. With some of my books, I have uh, I had I had a microphone or tape recorder, and uh, I with one of the books I. Uh, was paid to do it, and so I asked them if they would pay for a, a st- uh, someone to transcribe the, the, the tape. And so they would transcribe it, but in several, like the book I wrote about at Winghaven, I transcribed myself all those interviews with Mr. and Ms. Clarkson, who mm-hmm. were fascinating, but mm-hmm. to transcribe it onto a typewriter with the foot pedal um, in yeah. those early days is hard. Yeah, so when you're doing that, do you try to build up uh, like, you know, this book, you've got a lot of facts about a lot of different time periods in Charlotte history and different figures and that kind of thing. Do you try to collect it all uh, and then look at this massive information and then go to write it? Or do you kind of write as you go when you as you're collecting information? Well, I can only put my head into one time period at a time. Okay, so you did kind of break it up. Yes. Yeah, yeah like um, the Native Americans. I wrote about the Native Americans uh, that were here long before the white people came. Yeah. Uh, then I wrote about um, the colonial settlers and who they were and what they ate and where they went and or didn't go um, and how feisty and argumentative they were with each other. Uh, then I wrote about um, some about um, J- James K. Polk, who was from this area, Andrew Jackson, who was from this area. And, uh, of course, the Civil War, they had a the, the uh, Confederates stopped here um, and that that's another kind of story. Uh, then there's the Freedmen's Bureau who started uh, Johnson Seat Smith, uh, which was Biddle, Biddle University, yeah. uh, the Black College. And um, so you take it sort of like um, one swallow at a time. So you can you really can only dive into one period and make it alive if you're trying to do the whole thing. It's just overwhelming. Yeah, and there are different pieces of... Uh this book that have examples of history. You said there were stories about the Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. Does one come to mind of interest to you? Well, yes. There was a, a house, which there's still a marker on it. It's um, the Pfeiffer House, which is on uh, North Tryon Street. And um, General Pierre G.T. Beauregard had his headquarters in the Pfeiffer House, which was actually an estate it had hundreds and hundreds of acres, and st- and his daughter, the the woman who was the daughter of the house during that period, described the horsemen coming to the door and the muddy feet coming in the front door and what they had in the drawing drawing room and how one of the last cabinet meetings of the Confederacy met upstairs in the bedroom because the treasurer was sick in bed. Uh, stories like that. Yeah, I think I see going uptown, you see these little historical markers, mm-hmm. and I think there's one about last cabinet meeting or when they were on the run, they went through yes. here kind of thing. Yes. This is an example of how you have to be careful with history. 
the sign says the last full cabinet meeting. And if you leave the full out, it's not true. Okay, so it wasn't the last cabinet meeting. No. <laughs> All right. No. Okay. That everybody, everybody that was on the Confederate cabinet had to be there for you to say the last full cabinet meeting. One, one of the last meetings they had was down the road at the Springs House uh, down in, in Fort Mill. Uh, and, and you also have some inter- interesting information in the book about Camp Green, which was a World War One right. camp that sort of almost doubled the size of Charlotte's population. It did. Or maybe even tripled, I don't know. because that, How many different – they had a – and where was that located? It was far out Freedom Drive area? It's Freedom Drive is named that. And Remount, Remount Road is where the horses, the, the men would bring their horses in. Oh, and, is that why it's called and, Remount? And then they would leave the tired horses and remount for a fresh horse. I didn't know that. So it's called Remount. Okay. Well, we could keep, <laughs> we could keep going here with all the, all the history. Um, we've got one final read. Before that, though, just you've written a lot over time. What are you most proud of with your body of work? Well, that I was able to um, really delve into some stories that have fascinated charlatans, new charlatans and old charlatans, Mm -hmm. Uh, things they didn't quite know so much about, like the Winghaven story, the story Mm -hmm. of the Clarksons and that bird sanctuary and remarkable Mm -hmm. garden that they did, the story of Myers Park, Mm -hmm. why, why it is so beautiful and why it has lasted and why people enjoy it so much, Mm -hmm. Uh, its grandeur and beauty. Um, and what about the poetry? The poetry um, is sort of the mischievous side of me that you can let go and uh, and listen for the sounds. I I have been known to listen for conversations in the dressing room of Target to pick up good sound, good <laughs> sentences, good, good, good material. Huh? Good material, yes. So um, I assume you're not done yet. Are you going to still be writing until you're 99 and a half? Maybe, if I'm lucky. Maybe, if you're lucky. Okay, well, Mary, we've got uh, one final read. It comes from this book, Charlotte, North Carolina, Brief History. It's, it's toward the end of the book, and it kind of gives us a good uh, a good feeling about Charlotte as we come uh, come to the end of the book and to the end of the podcast. So I thought uh, whenever you're ready, you could read that. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Charlotte in the 21st century has clearly paved its mud and stretched to classy spires. The people on its avenues are vital and diverse. Art and music spill into its streets, parks, and buildings. Writers, musicians, bankers, and chefs abound. Dogwoods sprawl on lush lawns in city neighborhoods and deep in lonely woods. These are valued. On a Saturday in spring, something involuntary calls its people of the Piedmont to buy azaleas when they went out intending to buy only milk or bagels. But there are other bridges to the future. Street names recall freedom, independence, Camp Green, Mint, church and college. They recall people whose fiber carried Charlotte forward. Caldwell, Vance, Hill, Alexander, McDowell, Graham, Pfeiffer, Davidson, and Brevard a stalwart, feisty clan. As in the earliest days when Charlottians traded with their scattered village kinfolk, Charlotte centers a growing ring of smaller independent cities partnering in trade and transportation now, linking it strongly once again to York, Pineville, Gastonia, Mooresville, Salisbury, Monroe, Rock Hill, Fort Mill, Concord, Matthews and Davidson and others nearby. No longer are they the far country. There's a choice to be made in this delicious country, so described by an early explorer. Will we preserve the land and streams and rivers? As new migrations arrive and elbow toward change, will Charlotte choose to affirm what it has always been known for? An unusual degree of fairness and opportunity for those who live here. One newspaper man, James Batten, said, Charlotte has flaws, but the spirit, the leadership, the quality of life, the value systems one finds in Charlotte, most American communities would love to have. Charlotte is, in lots of ways, an embodiment of the best of what the New South might aspire to.
All right, Mary, that's a great way to uh, sort of wrap things up here. You, you mentioned Delicious Country in the reading there. I had uh, mm-hmm. Scott Hewell on the show. He wrote the book about John Lawson uh, yeah. and his travels in the 1700s, and that's the way John Lawson described this area, such a delicious country. Yeah. And that's the way the book started off with Lawson, Lawson. his spaniel yeah. dog coming up from South Carolina. Yeah, and, and that travel. So, Well, uh, what's next, Mary? What, what you got? You, you're writing something now? You just kind of... Doing poetry from time Doing to poetry, doing some interviews, yeah, mm-hmm. writing yeah. letters. I write real letters. You write real letters. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Good. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of the Charlotte Ridge Podcast. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show, and uh, you know, best of luck to you and your continued writing. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.